Welcome to Drinks at Work from Boothby with Sam Bygrave. That is me. There's sun in the sky and the smell of summer approaching, which means it must be September in Sydney. And that means that Sydney Bar Week has just come and gone. During the week, I hosted a panel talk, one of the more interesting ones I've been involved with, I reckon. It was for Proof & Company, and it was called Casa de Agave. And I've got the recording of that talk for you on this episode of Drinks at Work. We had some big agave brains on the panel. We had Reese Griffiths, the founder of Agave Cartel, and the group bars guy for Sydney Hospitality Group, Solitel. We had Jeremy Blackmore, the co-founder of the Mucho Group and its bars, including the agave-focused Cantina OK and Tio's. And we had a special international guest, Jay Khan, the owner and bartender of the Mexico-inspired cocktail bar, Koa, in Hong Kong. It's a bar that has been named Asia's best bar three years running. We talked about the current agave boom, where it goes next, who the winners and losers are in the world of agave spirits, and loads more. It's a really spirited discussion with a range of views and well worth a listen. Uh, congrats to Proof & Company for putting on a wide-ranging talk like they did. Okay, let's get into it now. Um, we're going to be talking about the uh, current state of agave, the future of agave, and a bit about sustainability today. To do that, you're not going to be hearing from me, you're going to be hearing from some big brains who know a lot more about it. We've got three of the big brains here, uh, all the way from Hong Kong. Uh, he owns Koa, the number one cocktail bar in Asia, three years in a row now, I believe. It's inspired by Mexico. His name is Jay Khan. Give him a round of applause. Yeah. yeah. Very lucky to have you here, my friend. Uh, we also have one of Australia's most knowledgeable agave nerds in the business. Uh, he's the group's bar manager for Solitel, also the founder of Agave Cartel. His name is Reese Griffiths. Give him a round of applause. And one of the co-founders of the Mucho Group, uh, instrumental in Cantina OK and Tio's. He's traveled to Mexico a number of times to source products over there. His name is Jeremy Blackmore. Thank you very much, guys, for being here today. Uh, Jay, can you tell us, before we get started on the Agave Chat, just tell us a little <laughs> bit about Koa and the sort of the mission, I guess, that you have there. Uh, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, so Koa, we opened back in 2017. Uh, we wanted to bring Agave Spirits to Hong Kong. Uh, back then, uh, we didn't have too many bars uh, previously that uh, did anything with Agave. So it was a very adventurous concept and... Uh, uh, yeah, it's been almost six years now. And uh, yeah, the, the only mission we have is to educate people about agave spirits and making sure that uh, we pass on the right message. And uh, yeah. yeah. And what got you into agave spirits in the first place? Where did the interest come from? Uh, so traveling to Mexico, for sure. Uh, I went, the first time I, I went to Mexico was, I think, in 2015. Uh, I had a really good time. And when I came back to Hong Kong, I was already planning for my next trip. Uh, so I... Yeah, so when I was planning to do my own bar, I wanted to do agave spirit because I want to bring a bit of that experience I had in Mexico back to Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah very nice. Uh, now, Reese, you're the group bars manager for Solitel. Uh, what does that involve? And can you tell us where'd your love affair with agave stuff begin? Because you're one of the founders of, uh, you founded Agave Cartel. Um, so I guess day to day for me with Solitel is looking after kind of all things cocktail spirits and beers across the group. So mostly focusing on training, education, and kind of building skill sets into the bartenders in the bars. And so, you've got a few venues, right? Uh, yeah, a couple. We've got 27 at the moment. So ranging <laughs> from everything from like your little local kind of community pub all the way up to two, three height restaurants. So pretty widespread and a pretty fun kind of 
way to see the whole spectrum of hospitality and kind of figure out how we can help. Um, I guess for me, agave spirits, I fell in love really early on in my bartending career, kind of with the influence of Cafe Pacifico and hanging out at the bar there and kind of really fell in love with tequila as a first stepping off point and then moved to Mexico at 20 for a year and a half and, and traveled and mostly surfed and ate tacos and drank cheap tequila. Um, but kind of fell in love with that and then kind of kept delving into it and so when we came when I came back I really I started Agave Cartel as a tasting group essentially we'd start to get together six eight ten bartenders every month and just taste stuff together that we hadn't seen before and that kind of built into I guess more of a education platform and I ended up starting working with brands to develop training programs around it, I guess with a very similar goal to Jay just to kind of spread the love and the knowledge of kind of some incredible liquid and get more people drinking it. Yeah, it's a spirit category that kind of inspires that kind of adoration and passion. Jeremy, you've been to Mexico a number of times sourcing agave spirit for Cantina OK and Tio's. Can you tell us how did you get into the in the, the love for the thing? Um, well, unlike these two, I mean, all of you kind of know who I am. I'm Jeremy. I'm own Mucho Group. We've got Cantina and Tio's are our kind of agave-focused venues. Um, so I got into it less with the love of education – less with the pure passion of these two gentlemen and more just to get the most amount of shots into people's hands. Um, a noble cause. It was a noble, a noble um, pursuit. Um, and then slowly, over many years of being at Tio's and slinging some delicious juice, we started to realise that we were just absolutely in love with Mexico. Started to travel there, get a little bit further off the beaten path and just discover the most amazing things. That's where Cantina OK came from. It was like having a place that we could show the amazing things that we were finding and telling the stories. And you do a great job of that too. Um, Agave Spirits are having something of a moment again, I think. I don't know if it's the margarita or perhaps. Uh, why do you guys think this is? Agave Spirits seem to be in hot demand around the world, but especially in our bars here in Australia. Jeremy, you want to go first? Um, I think it's funny because agave spirits have – that's been the, the story from the agave spirits industry. I'm sure you guys have heard that for about the last 15 years. You know, Every year I come to one of these seminars and say agave spirits are the next big thing. I've read the story about 20 times. Already. Exactly, and I'm sure that that's what kept you in the job for a long time. <laughs> that was, that was, and it's begun. I, uh, that wasn't meant to be a burn. I feel a bit bad now. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just made it. Um, All right, Jay, what did you think about the question? <laughs> um, but I do think that at the moment it's having a bit of a moment. The margarita has never been more popular than ever. Um, it's, it's kind of pushing itself out into these weird parts of um, hospitality as well. Like we've never sold more shots of tequila at our nightclub than ever before. We're seeing a whole new generation of 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-olds drinking tequila as their first thing to shoot. It kind of feels like going back in time a little bit. Yeah, the 90s are back. Exactly, with lime and salt and they're ready to rip. And they're listening to 90s hip-hop too and they're uh, doing the whole thing. It's like a cosplay. <laughs> uh, what, what, is, uh, what do you think, which parts of uh, Agave Spirits are sort of driving this interest? Jay, are you seeing it? I mean, in the ultra premium luxury end, you're, Jeremy, you're singing in the in the, sh in the shots department. Absolutely. Is it is it throughout every sort of element of the category? Uh, I think the perception of uh, agave spirits in general has shifted a little bit now. It used to be shots and shots, uh, but now we see agave spirit as a premium category as well. 
So I think that plays uh, a big part of the agave growth at the moment right now. And adding to what Jeremy said, I think celebrity has a big influence on agave spirits and opening doors for a lot more uh, consumers to actually come and delve into this this category of agave spirits. So we have George Clooney selling you know his brand for a billion dollars, and from there we had The Rock and uh, Kendall Jenner now owning their own brands. Yeah. So I think that plays a big part as well. Yeah. Uh, Reese, how are you guys seeing the way uh, tequila is being consumed across the group? Um, I guess definitely margarita leading the way like if we look across Wait, where's this margarita thing coming from again like why has it come back because there was a time there where it's like the margarita was ordered but then it was tobby's margaritas that were really popular but now it seems to be yeah it's pushing back towards a classic i think it's probably an education point of people being know how to being known how to make it properly um i guess also like we look at it across our group and it's top three cocktail across every one of our venues pretty much and it's almost an expectation now that you can walk into any pub across Australia and you can order a classic margarita and have that made for you. Where I think five, ten years ago, like if you walked into a pub and ordered a margarita, you'd probably everyone would think you're fucking crazy. Um, but now it's that expectation that that drink can be made, and it, it almost is in every every pub, bar, restaurant, everything. So I think it's that global reach that's happened and whether that's influence of the US with how popular it is there and when people are traveling. But even if you're traveling, you know, to Bali, Fiji, like it's an expectation that there's a margarita on a menu or available now. Well, when we talked before, you, I think you were saying that tequila as a mixer as well as sort of leaping up there in terms of the rankings, like getting up towards, you know, yeah, it's, and gin. it's definitely in the top three category across our group as, as spirit sales, which is pretty wild. Yeah. That blows my mind. Jeremy, you, what do you see at Tears? Is it like the cheaper stuff or are you selling sort of ultra premium kind of tequila there? Tears is, is a good mix. I think it's, it's still sitting in that weird place where you see like a – so there's a lot of cheap stuff and a lot of like your recession special stuff and then, um, and then there's a bit of dip in the middle and then you see the expensive stuff too. So I do think it's kind of like splitting – you know, the, the industry is splitting. People understand that there's this really high quality end of it and then that's what people are going for if they're going to spend um, they're going to spend less money because they spend it on one thing, you know, higher quality with less money. So they're going to go for that top end or they're going to drink bulk tequila at the bottom. And are they brand calling the top end? I think so. Mm, I almost call it bot, like bottle calling. You know what I mean? Like they want the like big – The ceramic bong. Exactly, the big um, ceramic bong or they want the like uh, – <laughs> <laughs> Crystal done. He said Jeremy bong first, can say right? He wants, apparently, yeah. I'm pretty sure he said bong first. Um, <laughs> Nothing else? No, no, okay, no. no. Okay. Um, okay, so we've got a bit of an idea of where agave is is at right now. What do you think are the exciting opportunities for the agave category? What's uh, what maybe we haven't heard of that we should be exploring? You want to start down there, Reese? Yeah, I think for me, it's probably less about. I guess tequila and that driver and more in the, for me, the exciting part is distillate de agave um, and what that is and essentially declassified spirits and yeah, allowing, could, essentially there's there's been uh, some changes and some producers making decisions to declassify their spirits and there's a bit of education that needs to go on around this because people look at distillate and be like, you know, what the fuck is that? Um, but it's, if well, maybe- yeah, Tell us what the fuck that is. <laughs> so basically it's a spirit that maybe doesn't fit into the regulations or the norms set down for that certain spirit category. And it might be as simple as it doesn't meet the exact lab testing required. So it might be an acidity 
regulator it might be a methanol content and because they haven't changed their production methods for over 300 years their product doesn't exactly feel it fall into what's a modern interpretation of that spirit category so by calling it distillado they would sit slightly outside that and be able to still sell the spirit on so us to experience it in the form that you would be if you went and visited them rather than it have to be changed watered down Make, made to pass a government regulation to then be exported to us. So I think it's some, in, not in all cases, but in some cases it allows agave spirits to be a truer representation of what they actually are. Right. Do you, do you have any thoughts on this, Jay? Is this the sort of stuff that you're looking to stock? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, adding to what you said, um, the, one of the reasons why this a lot of the agave is getting more popularity now is because the, the process of certifying a mezcal actually takes about a year. Uh, at least, and uh, you need to pay thousands of dollars to get it approved. And sometimes it doesn't even get approved. Uh, so a lot of the producers in Mexico, they actually, they don't have enough money to go through that certification process. So what they do is they end up just selling their mezcal through middlemen using plastic bottles. Um, so <laughs> looking at you, as well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I think, uh, um, but, but yeah, in general, I think the regulations are softened as well. Um, and also it's, 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 it's a category that, that's unlimited in my opinion. Um, there's a lot of diversity and um, less restrictions, I would say, and uh, it tastes better. But do, I mean, this comes in a reaction to what we were taught before, which was if it's not, you know, uh, 100% blue Weber agave tequila, then it's probably not great. Or if it's not, you know, got the mezcal designation, then it's kind of meant to be sketchy, supposedly. But this is there's a change there, I guess. Jeremy? Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's funny because there is a change, but it's it, it goes both ways. Like if you're in in country in Mexico and somebody comes up with a totally unlabeled mezcal, like there is a really high chance that you're gonna get cane spirit or something completely different. You know what I mean? Like you can buy absolute shit absolute horrible stuff in Mexico but doing what we do and doing what great other um, proof is doing it as well other people like Cinco Sentidos going out to producers and buying um, agave spirits that they can see how it's made that they get to put their hands on the product in there and yet yeah, might be called um, agave like destilada de agave that's all of those bottles on the back bar at Cantina okay destilada de agave right so that's imported under the under the name destilada de agave but I know for a fact that these producers call that mezcal. Like, that's what they're, they're not out in the market saying, hey, this is destilado de agave. This is, well, they'll call it mezcal, they'll call it ricea, they'll call it whatever they call it in their town, tushka, whatever it ends up being, you know? So for me, it's more about, rather than about this category stuff, it's more about the provenance of the, of the spirit, really. If you can trust the people that you're going to be buying it from, that might be proof, that might be Cinco Sentidos, that could be us, a cantina, okay? You're going to know you're going to get a great product with a great story. And it's really the story which is the most important thing. How do you know who to trust when you're buying that stuff over there? We just follow, the, we follow our taste buds, <coughs> basically. That's it. So we don't buy any spirit that we haven't met the distiller. So I guess that's a pretty basic rule. That's not really a rule that came from us trying to not get crap. That was a rule that, hey, I want to actually go and do this fun thing. You know what I mean? And I want to drink it out of the still and I want to taste it from the barrel. And, and so that's just slowly evolved. And that, that's why those bottles on the back bar are like so full of interest and so full of meaning is because every single one of those bottles was, I picked it by hand. 
a lot of them we've just put in our suitcase and we brought it back and we put it put it on the shelf and yeah, we started selling it. You know, bottles, right? that's it. Yeah. You can go in there, go into Cantina today, look up left, and you'll see a whole line of one liter water bottles. <laughs> um, when did this kind of regulation stuff change? Because it wasn't always this way. Um, is one of you want to sort of speak to the sort of changes and maybe why these things changed? Yeah, sure. I guess the the biggest change in terms of if we speak about mascar is probably around 2017 with Nom 70. So that was the last kind of major reform to any rules where they actually outlined the categories and very detailed methods of production. And this was well received by some of the mescal community and not very well received by other parts of the mescal community because of how it delineated and put their mescals into a certain box or category that they maybe didn't agree with. Um, so that was a major change where we saw it split into essentially industrial mescal, artisanal mescal and ancestral mescal. And, you know, you talk to five people and three will tell you it's amazing too, too. It's the fucking worst idea that's ever happened. But it was the biggest kind of reform to mescal regulation. Is there the any sort of, I guess, uh, commonality between the people who think it's amazing and those who don't think it is? Is it bigger players thinking it's amazing? And is it is this politics basically at the end of the day? I mean, I think there's always politics and money and anytime we talk about this, I think a lot of the negative negativity about NOM 70 was the fact that all the products had to be rigorously lab tested and it just so happened that only one lab was available that was someone involved with the CRM. So it all got funneled through there. So decisions could be made about products that may or may not have been true to the product and then a lot of people don't trust in that process as well because they you know they don't think that that should define where their product sits in market where that how, what they should label it as as well and is this the same with tequila jay or was there much change in that around that time the classification yeah. um i, I think tequila much? i think tequila i mean i'm not aware if there's any new classification for tequila no not since no. probably no, 2005 no. with extra Nejo. i know they're probably lobbying for cristalina to become a Category. Can you tell me what Crystalino is about for anyone who doesn't know what that is and uh, why it's such a, a controversial product? Uh, yeah, I can tell you what it is. So Chris, if, for anyone that doesn't know, Crystalino is a, a modern category that was kind of invented to really target probably the luxury market in Mexico where you take an agave spirit that you've waited six to eight years to pull the plant out of the ground and a really long process and you produce a really beautiful spirit and you put it in a barrel for maybe three years and it tastes really cool and then you strip the flavor out of it and you make it taste like bubble gum and then you put it in a bottle and it's clear. I think it's uh, correct. Is this is this is this a practice that's been borrowed from the rum industry? I mean, that's what I've been hearing. It sounds like it. Yeah. yeah, because in some in some countries, like let's say Barbados, I think they're not allowed to make. Um, I'm not sure if it's Barbados. I'm just. I think it's Barbados, uh, where they're not allowed to make blanco rum. So they have to age it and they have to filter it to make that's it Australia. look like blanco. Right? No, that's Australia. Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't make you can't be called rum in Australia unless it's. I think I'm not an expert. Three yeah. years or three years. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Rules. yeah. So, so I think it's a it's a borrowed technique. Yeah. 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 All right, you're not up here, Storm. Just give it a second. Yeah. There'll be Q and A at the end, so uh, you'll get your chance. Uh, um, okay. Well, uh, who's who's missing out from these changes? Who were the winners from these changes then? Well, I think that the whole thing now is that you're seeing is like there is that 
in places like this, like with educated consumers, places like Australia and places like the United States, places like Western Europe, well, you're starting to see Desolado Agave grow, um, but it's still the biggest players that are winning around the world. You know what I mean? Like most places that have less educated consumers, like people where Mezcal is still an emerging category, well, they're still going to be getting um, Mezcal that's categorized Mezcal and that's coming from the medium to the larger size players in there. But don't forget, like that doesn't mean that there aren't placed positions in these registered mezcals for smaller producers. Often they work as a village. So Delmagay, you know, we visited one village for Delmagay where they had nine different producers all in the village and they all sold in to make, um, to make that. So there are different positions where different people can work at scale, but it is very complicated. That's the whole thing about mezcal. It's like complicated, really diverse, really weird. I mean, you might have a better answer for that. Can you buy Desolado de Agave in China? Uh, yeah, that's pretty tricky. Um, I think even recently, mezcal was not even allowed in China because of the methanol content, and they put some really stupid restrictions. Uh, just recently, they, they, they softened the rules a little bit. So we have a bar in Shanghai as well, so we opened Cola in Shanghai. So I think the timing for us was just right, so we're able to get in more mezcal. Uh, but before that, it was, it was tricky, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, We'll get to sustainability in just a moment, um, but I do want to see, are there any sort of things that are holding back more widespread adoption of tequila and more widespread enjoyment of it? Obviously, the, the regulation is changing every now and then. It can be confusing for consumers. Um, and I'd love to touch on celebrity tequila too. So any thoughts on that? <laughs> I, I, I personally... <laughs> I don't know that much about celebrity tequila, but I, I personally don't think there's anything holding back. Tequila. I think it's, it's, it's emerging as a real powerhouse. It's slowly taking um, over where gin sits. And yeah. I, think, I gin. think so. Yeah, gin. I think it's going to be the second biggest category of spirits in Australia in not, in not that long a time frame. Um, I, I don't see the rise of industrial tequila slowing down anytime soon. And I think, to be honest, uh, uh, industrial tequila is a different product to um, artisanal mezcal, but they both have these amazing places in the industry and I think they're both great. So I, I, I don't think there's anything slowing down. I think it's con continued to grow. That's my major feeling with it. It's fun. It's, it's got all the right hallmarks that, that, that say the right things for people that want to go and drink and that want to have a real story, want to drink a margarita. It's saying all the right things. It's going a long way. It's emotional. It's definitely emotional. Uh, uh, Reese, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I agree and disagree, I guess, in some parts. For me, yeah, I think the trajectory is 100% right. I think it's going to keep growing. The concern for me is does that growth impact the quality of what's in the bottle and how much does that impact it and how does that play into the other kind of thing that we all have to think about is the, the price for it in the rail compared to a product like a gin and, and will the consumer accept that? So they're the kind of two things I see in the future is if the product's going to be made in a, the right way to keep the quality there and how much is that price going to increase over time and is that sustainable to keep as a cocktail pour? I think they're the two really big challenges for growth in agave spirits. Right, and that sort of plays in a bit with the sustainability angle as well, yeah? We'll get to that in just a sec. On the celebrity tequila thing, is it a net positive or a net negative? <coughs> just an easy, easy response. Negative. Huge Why? negative. Why is it a negative? Um, because it's creating a false perception of what tequila is, in my opinion. Um, very heavily chemically manipulated products being pushed out and people then think that's what agave spirits taste like when it, it's not. 
And Jay? I agree with both of them. They, they pretty much covered everything about celebrity tequilas. I think for me, in the end of the day, is about their practices, like how they make their tequila. If they're making it uh, the way, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not being enforced by additives or anything like that, I'm okay to use it. I don't mind it's, there's a celebrity behind the brand as long as the practices are, are in line with our ethos. Jeremy, you don't have any thoughts about celebrity tequila? I, I, I think it's a net positive. <laughs> I think we should just let people drink whatever spirits that they want to drink yeah. and enjoy it. And if they want it to taste like vanilla, then go ahead and make yeah. it taste like no, vanilla. I, think, I, I don't know. No. That's my feeling. No, that's absolutely like, – yeah, yeah, The that's, people that are getting – I'm sorry. Tequila. I know I'm a bit um, – Bit, like it's a gateway to Keele, exactly. I agree with you. Like, no. But at the end of the day, like in our bar, for example, we don't endorse that. But if people yeah. want to drink those tequila, it's available somewhere else. They can go. Like well, we have nothing wrong. But yeah, <laughs> it's, it's uh, nothing wrong, but we don't. So Jeremy will accept everyone. It's also about transparency for me. It's about transparency. If that's the way you make your tequila, you need to be honest about it. And you need to show that you don't talk about small batch and then produce 7 million cases a year and then post about how cool that is. Because that's not small batch. Yeah. Um, and that, for me, yeah, that, you're right. If they want to drink that, it's cool. But there needs to be some transparency in, in the production techniques. You know, it's, anytime that I'm visiting Tequila Town and you go to Salsa, it always is one of the cool visits for me because they're one of the companies that openly will show you their diffuser column seal process and they don't lie about it. So for me, it's and about. What do they call it? Hey, or what do they call that? Like, their marketing—it's funny. They call it like freshly pressed cake, <laughs> <laughs> no, fr freshly pressed agave juice. <laughs> I love it. You still have a question, Dylan? One real quick one before we move oh, on. No, I, I just think it's fascinating. It's fascinating to hear about the what we have is the like that influencer end of agave, but what we—it's almost like the new. It's the new hurdle in agave spirit because the previous hurdle in agave spirit was trying to get people past gold tequila. Yeah, exactly. So now we like, dare we say it, we're in this middle road where we're trying to show people premium agave spirit. And it's really interesting to watch the journey of Mezcal move out of this because tequila is more structured than American whiskey, right? Like there's so many rules. It's like if it arrives in Australia, it's pretty legit spirit. But we're like now I think the excitement is in what sits between Coca-Cola bottles on the side of the street with scorpions in them and, and, and what sits between the – what the fuck's that family called? Patron. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the Cuervo. The fucking all the girls and their dads are. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. All the girls and their dads. Yeah. No, but um, I, I totally agree with that. That's where you always find everything exciting. You know what I mean? Between the most basic and the most weird is where all the interest happens. That's why just a lot of the agave is coming. Like there is, when you get people hooked on agave, even if it tastes like vanilla at the beginning. You're going to get 20% of those people who are going to be converted to agave drinkers for life. You know what's going to happen? Two years' time, they hit 24 and they're going to buy an interesting bottle at the bottle shop. They're going to turn up to Cantina OK when they're a bit older and they're going to drink a mezcal. <laughs> I don't know, they're going to go to Cora in Hong Kong. Too, yeah. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, I just think it's, it's all a step along the same journey and people are going to love it at each step. And that's why people are able to accept Destilado Agave. You know, like they have to know 
firstly what tequila is before they can get to that step. You know, like it doesn't exist without the tequila there, the framework. So, All right, we're talking about something that's uh, kind of tequila but not tequila. I think it would be remiss to not talk about Australian agave spirits briefly. It's a small sort of fledgling market at the moment. Uh, what are your thoughts on what you've tasted so far? Uh, Jay, have, Jay, have you tasted any? Okay. Well, we'll go to Reese then. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, it's a pretty interesting one. There is a lot of kind of, again, probably poorly produced stuff that's being made from imported agave syrup. The quality is really low. The flavor profile is not there. there so not, is, not from the actual peanut itself. No, there's a, a number of brands range. being sold in the Australian market that aren't using agave. They're using agave syrup, whether it's imported, it's probably not produced here. And it's fermented from that and the results are frankly pretty horrible. Um, there are a couple of brands starting to make some really good quality liquid, which is really exciting. Um, I still think there's a, a way to go, um, but seeing them develop and get better and better and better is really exciting. Um, they're definitely not gonna be tequila or mezcal or sit into any of those categories. They're gonna be their own thing, um, but the quality is starting to improve and we're starting to see some really cool things. So I think within the next five years, we'll start to see some really interesting spirits coming from Australia. Yeah, the agave grows in Australia. Yeah, so we have a lot of Americana, agave Americana that grows wild now because it was planted ornamentally and we have a fair bit of plantings of blue agave and espadine as well. But they, because we have a very similar climate, they grow really well in the arid areas. Is, is that something you stock in your bars at all, Jay? Any agave spirit from other than Mexico? Uh, we don't sell it. But we have for comparison, for tasting, educational purpose. Like we have uh, agave spirits from India. We have agave spirits from, um, I think, uh, South Africa. Yeah, but we, we use it more for, for comparison purpose when we do our workshops, just for tasting. Because to me, like the ones, at least the ones that I have, they don't taste anything like mezcal or tequila at all. Although they say it's a, it's a, it's a distillado de agave from, from India, but when you try it, it's actually... A completely new spirit. Yeah. Um, talk about sustainability for a moment, because we've got a few more time, a little bit more time, and then we've got a few questions from the audience. But when it comes to sustainability, is there what are the things that you guys are thinking about when you're sourcing products for your bar? How much of a consideration is the sustainable practices of whatever producer we're talking about, and how much of it's more about how good it tastes and, and you know what price it comes in at? Jeremy? Oh, um, look, we we definitely think it, it, it comes into the thought process, obviously, but at the end of the day, we still, we, we have to run a business. Um, sustainability is an interesting thing on the ground in Mexico itself. The, um, I was just in Mexico in June, um, actually competing in a um, sustainability competition over there for Altos Tequila. Um, and the sustainability message over there is kind of complicated, you know? Like, I don't know if they're, um, well, you meet a lot of small producers, right? And this was something I wanted to talk to you about. A lot of small producers, how fair is it for us to put our ideas about what, often big ideas about what sustainability is on some of these smaller producers? Well, I think that they've got their own ideas of sustainability. Um, a lot in, in, in places like Oaxaca where there's a culture and like a community of producers all around, like they are starting to really have deep conversations about the sustainability, mostly economically like mostly about hey we, this resource that we're using that our grandparents used that our fathers used like it seems to be running out um actually it's often more they're more concerned about the wood than they are about the agave 
about the actual firewood because they deforested quite a large part of Oaxaca, cutting down trees to use to roast the agaves to make mezcal. And this is one of the big selling points of mezcal, right? That oh, exactly. Kind of yeah, signature flavor. Yeah, exactly. So you need that flavor. So you are starting to see this big and f- not in the smallest guys, but that next size up, that kind of medium-sized producer, a lot of them are working on kind of reforestation pieces, um, planting the agaves again, you know, um, the guys at, at Tromba, they're working this like replanting system where they're going out there and plant, replanting wild agaves. Mm. A lot of these people have their like local... I guess what you would call kind of DIY reforestation practices. So we met these guys right up in the middle of nowhere in this place called Iskatlan. And he was, um, you know, we're talking like end of the road, drive 45 minutes on dirt track. Um, and he was, we were like, oh, how do you do that? He just all wild. They just grow one type of agave, just grows in the hills. And like, he's like, yeah, we're trying to get more and more agaves growing. Well, like, how do you do that? And he's like, well, I'm, get a bucket of seeds and then on a windy day I stand outside and I throw handfuls into the air. I mean like that's the kind of scale well, we're talking about in these guys. That's exactly right. They are they do care about it. Um, like we laugh, but it doesn't all need to be like big mechanized kind of seeding projects yeah. and stuff, I suppose. But yeah, on, look on the big on the big size on the big scale. I think it's going to change pretty rapidly as the bigger companies have like these ESG targets. Like they're getting told from the international group arm of whatever their corporation is, "Hey, you're going to have to do some kind of greening yeah. to these processes." So I think that is slowly going to change. Yeah, it looks nice in an annual report. Maybe. Exactly, uh, Jay. Do you have any sort of sort of bare minimum requirements that you need your producers to meet? I think it depends on the. Uh, uh, in the end of the day, the, the products that we pick, uh, what we look at is the reputation of the brand. Um, we do look at their practices, um, but not so aggressively, as long as um, they're eco-friendly production process and you know they're sourcing agave in a more sustainable way. I think for us, that's already a thumbs up. Reese, how about you? Um, I think you obviously have to select for a wide range of different types of venues. <laughs> yeah, there's a pretty big spectrum, and it's pretty hard to kind of influence or make decisions based on that broader, I guess, sustainability lens. But for me, when I look at any Agave Spirits brand, it's more of like, I guess, a personal and community sustainability that's appealing for me. Like if it's a brand and it's not owned by a producer, like how much are they reinvested into the communities? This is especially important for me with Mascar. Like how much money goes back into the community to back to the grower, back to the distiller, rather than is it they just buy and distill it? If they're just buying distill it and selling it and taking a clip, I'm not really interested in that brand because it's a cultural product that builds in a community and supports a community. So it's important that the brand is involved in that and respects that. For me, that's much more appealing because the, the like you said, the whole sustainability piece is huge and very difficult to navigate. And you can't really go in and tell someone who's been making spirits for 300 years to change their practices because we don't like it because it doesn't sound green. Mm. Um, it's not my, our place to do that. Yeah. I mean, because there's also, I mean, you've all, you've all been there. there all right. There you go. <laughs> from, from your visits there, who, you know, again, where is, who's making the money here? Is it the brands? Because, I mean, Mescal, tequila, they command high prices on, on the bottle, store, uh, bottle shop's shelves, on your cocktail menus and everything. Who's making the money there? Is it going back to these communities, going back, reinvested into distilleries to improve practices? Is that desirable? Um, it's, in, it's interesting because the longer you spend, and I'm sure that you've felt this too, 
Like we, all of us here have been traveling to Mexico for probably 15 years, you know. Um, and we, and I know I've at least seen a huge amount of development in some of the communities that make, that make Mezcal. Um, and you meet people along the way that like really dislike the development happening in the communities, not locals, but like other foreigners are like, oh, last time I came, it was so much more authentic. They didn't even have a roof over there, you know. It was like. <laughs> I mean, a lot of Mezcal is sold in this rustic kind of thing. It's part Absolutely. of the marketing, right? But you, 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 you are seeing, especially at that grassroots level, you're seeing this like rise of, and I'm sure that you've seen this, this rise of like um, local entrepreneurship. So people that we were able to buy bulk, let's say five years ago, we were able to buy bulk mezcal off. Now we'll say, look, we're not even going to sell you any. It'll have to come in our bottle with our label on it, you know? We won't do that. Then that's a huge step for them. That's it. That means that yeah, money they is have coming control from the of, that, of their liquid in the store. Exactly. Yeah, so you're seeing more and more of that, like kind of inbuilt community control, and that's something we can't support anymore. Like we absolutely love to see that stuff. And a lot of these small distilleries are banding together in their communities to kind of make. While we're saying not environmental sustainability, like economic sustainability, like they're building a whole new model of the economics of mezcal, and it's incredible. And some of it is, it's mixed. It's not just selling the bottle. It's getting people in. It's getting Westerners in to come and do the tours. It's getting people from Mexico well, how City. Well, many tours happen here? Yeah. Well, exactly. Like th these things and they'll get – you can stay in their house overnight and they'll cook you dinner. But, right. you know, like they're becoming these like almost in-area experiences that we never really saw before. So we're seeing this Mezcal develop and it's really important – Like. It doesn't take that much money, not compared to Australia or somewhere like that, to develop these places, you know? Like you can make a big difference just by going into these really tiny communities and buying these products as well. It's an incredible part of what we get to do too. So, Anything else on that before I throw the Q&A for the audience? Um, I think I'll just throw in, I think one of the things we think about that, again, like we're saying that we might look down upon is like, you know, we see someone go from hand crushing agave to maybe they could afford to buy a shredder and then we go automatically, oh, fuck, that's not as good anymore. But this guy's been crushing agave by hand for 40 years. Like these developments, the spirit might change slightly, but the development of that is a sustainability piece for the producer and it's allowing them to have a better life and their kids to have a better life and whoever is involved in that industry to prosper more so i think we all sometimes especially for me take that nerdy lens off and go cool he might not be crushing by hand because that's super cool but he's actually doesn't have a fuck back and he can work um so it's those other things that sometimes it's really romantic to think about production but the reality is it's that's an improvement for the community an improvement for their lives and that's what they're trying to do when they make spirit right that's their goal yeah we don't champion like the Bush stills in you know Scotland back in the day as a way you've got to produce whiskey these days, right? <laughs> That's authentic. Okay, cool. Um, do we have any questions for the audience? We've got our man Alex here. Obviously, Storm Storms first. Check. We probably should have gone somewhere else. <laughs> check, check. Oh, it works. Help me. We can kill that mic though if we need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, go Storm. Um, I've been I've been thinking quite a lot about Australian agave lately. Um, in the way that it's developing, I guess, and maybe not just in Australia, really. It could be any of these new emerging markets that are starting to utilise agave in their own way. Do you feel like these newer markets coming under the label of distillate de agave have a fair chance or do you think they should create like um, regional names for what this agave spirit would be? So say sherry in Australia became apera. Do you feel like, say, take Australia for example, if Australia was to develop an ecosystem of agaves, 
and agave spirits, whether they should categorize themselves as something separate from Distillata de Agave, or do you think it would fit under that umbrella? Um, personally, I don't think it should be called Distillata de Agave outside of Mexico, because I think that's misleading. And I don't think anything like Spanish language should be used on any bottles produced here. I think agave spirit is fine. If, if it gets to a point where the industry is big enough and we want to call it Australian agave spirit and everyone agrees on that, that's cool. I think agave spirit's fine. But I think if we if I produce something here in New South Wales and I call it distillado de agave, it's super misleading to someone that picks up that bottle. And we're not mezcal. We need to be really clear about the spirits we're making and respect that that culture and traditions existed for 400 years and we're new to this. So I don't think distillado is the word. I think agave spirit's fine, which is technically the same thing. But I think that needs to be a clear delineation on bottles, to be honest. And when they do get to that point, I'd love to see your ideas for the name too. <laughs> do you have any more questions? <laughs> oh, you kangaroo, <laughs> oh, we, got, we got a question over here? I'll go over it. I've got, I got you. Um, I've got a pretty broad question. Um, I was just wondering where you guys see the growth of Mezcal going in a, at least the Australian markets. Because I feel like if you pulled 10 people off the streets of Sydney and asked them what's Mezcal, they'd have no idea. So I just the popularity of Mezcal and yeah, just if you see their growth in Australia, where you think it could go in the future? Australia. Yeah. <laughs> um, I th I, I'm, I'm strangely more pessimistic about the growth of of Mezcal than I was probably five years ago here in Australia. I think that places like um, places like Cantina are okay. I mean, I should be championing Mezcal, but <laughs> places like Cantina are okay are going to exist, and I hope that more people open things similar. I'd love to go and drink in one of them. Um, but I do think that, like, full awareness, kind of bring it into the culture. Like, you can go – like we were saying now, you can get a great margarita in any – um, pub in Australia, like you can go to any single cocktail bar in the United States and get, um, there'll be two cocktails on the menu that have mezcal in them, basically. And everybody knows what it is and it's a really deep, integral part of bar culture over there. And we've had mezcal for the same amount of time and I haven't seen that part of the culture emerge. I don't, I'm a little bit more pessimistic about that. Maybe it'll just on the slow burn and it'll slowly come through, but I feel like maybe we missed a we missed the mezcal moment there for a minute. Well, you yeah, know, a guy in general is bigger over there, right? Bigger Absolutely, than vodka and gin. Yeah, yeah. yeah biggest, to be honest, it's probably a cost world. thing too. Like yeah. it's just can't afford to put mezcal in everything. You know, I'm, so I also am not mad that it isn't on that meteoric rise because, like, for me, the trends in mezcal are also double-edged sword. It's great to see more people drinking it, but it's also more concerning for me as well because you're seeing a lot of brands come up that are people with a lot of money they don't give a shit about the product and they're going and buying distillate and they're buying distillate from maybe 12 palanques and they're blending it together and putting a label on it and bottling it with no care about what's in it. So there's that side because they're trying to fulfill a price point and a label to put in a well. So for me, that's a worrying trend in Mascal because it's taking away the beauty of the spirit. And so that trend and the more, obviously the more we consume, there's a risk of that. So that's also like a concern for me that it's going to take away from the spirits we're able to taste and it's going to become a monopoly of big brands. Okay, time for one more question. Do you think with the uh, growth of Distillata de Agaves that the kind of trajectory of distributors is changing because now there's more reliance on our distributors having that information and correct information, not just to sell you a product, but to sell you the information and the knowledge as well? Yeah. 
Definitely. I think that's going to be more and more important. It's, it's further than just the distributors. It's like the importance of um, – it's just the importance of knowledge, right? It's the importance of being out – like traceability, being able to look all the way back through the journey of the spirit, how the spirit gets into your hand, you know? Like it'll never get – as we muddy – the waters here, like at least since, you know, the 90s, you'd be able to get, pick up a bottle of tequila in Australia and know that it actually came from Mexico, you know? I, I'm, I'm old enough, total old man, that you could buy, I think it was called Porfidio. Porfidio. Porfidio te, tequila here that was on every back bar because it had a cool bottle. I Porfidio and it came from South Africa. You know, like that was not long ago. I've, st- I've still got some bottles that we use for training called Chiapas and it's made in the Blue Mountains. There you go. Yeah. And it contains 0% agave. Yeah. We, we, we had it it tested by the CRT, 0% agave, and the methanol content was so high it wouldn't have been allowed to be exported. Well, that's pretty authentic Blue Mountain spirit. Exactly. That needs to be protected. We need to get that uh, denomination of origin. Blue Mountain spirit. (laughs) Okay, we've got time for one more question. It's going to be the last one of the afternoon. Oh, last question. I love it. Thanks. It's got to be a good um, one. First of all, amazing. Thanks, guys. Really loved it. It's really good. I just wanted to ask you what, what your thoughts are on the additive-free program for tequila. You know, we're starting to see in Singapore where I'm based, people are asking for additive-free. And I know in the US, a lot of menus now list additive-free. And they charge a premium. You know, it's good. But I don't know whether in Hong Kong or here in Australia, anyone's even thinking about that yet. But I welcome your thoughts. I think a lot of the consumers actually don't even know what it is, to be honest. Whenever they pick a tequila, it's mostly based on the marketing or the taste of the product. They don't even know there's actually additives contained in the tequila. Personally, for me, I feel like it's good to have more transparency. It's good to know whether the product actually contains or not contain, because we're the middle person. We're the one selling to our consumers. It's best to have the information on hand. What, what are the sort of additives we're talking about? Uh, glycerin, uh, sweetener. Uh, vanilla, vanilla, vanilla. Oh, 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 and, and oak extract, and oak extract yeah. Yeah. but that that flavoring or syrups can be any syrup so there's no classification on what that is and it can be any in any concentration so that one percent of your volume yeah. of your distillate can be made up of any four of those so that one percent could be an ultra concentrated flavoring so therefore like the impact overall can be completely altering well that sucks yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, can we give the panel a round of applause? Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's a good round of applause. You did very well. All right, folks, I think that's all for us today. Uh, go off, be wild, be by weekday four. Good luck tomorrow. Thanks to Jay, Jeremy, and Reese for sharing their insights, and a special thanks to Proof & Company for putting on a wide-ranging discussion and not being afraid to have a range of opinions on the panel. I suppose that's what you can do when your agave portfolio is a quality one like theirs is. If you enjoyed the podcast, please pass it on to a friend and subscribe to the Boothby newsletter. You can do that at boothby.com.au. Okay, until next time, this has been Drinks at Work from Boothby. <laughs>